Christians always talk about the kingdom of God, but what exactly is it? Is it a place, an idea, a spiritual state of being, or just another word for the church? Are we in it now, or is it coming, or is it both, or neither? What do some Christians mean when they talk about building the kingdom or bringing the kingdom down to earth? And what does the Bible have to say about it? We're going to be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology on Air. Well, welcome back to Theology on Air. We are, of course, an offshoot of Theology on Tap, where we gather together people here in Houston to talk about fascinating things, and we drink good beer, and we eat good food, and you should come to our events. If you want to learn more about what we're doing here live, uh, you can go to HoustonTOT.com for all the event uh, minutia. Um, but here in the podcast, we get to go deeper into some of these ideas and pick them apart and um, and learn. So uh, I'm Sarah Stone. I'm the executive director for Theology on Tap, joined by Evan McClanahan, senior pastor at First Lutheran here in Midtown. And our guest today, who's been on the show a couple of times and behind the scenes even more times, Stephen Curto, is a full-time Bible and logic teacher at a K-12 classical school in Spring, Texas. He has a bachelor's in biblical studies and master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, where he worked for over seven years as a jack-of-all-trades, librarian, Greek tutor, tech guy, and academic advisor. He's married to the brilliant and beautiful, can you tell they're newlyweds, uh, Hannah, and they are expecting the arrival of their first child, a girl, in the fall. So welcome back. Thanks. So glad Good you're to here. be here. So this kind of came about because, um, and I don't think we have a recording of this, so you can't go back and listen. You just had to be there. But our first ever mini TOT was a very niche and nerdy topic about dispensationalism. Don't worry. You don't have to know much about that um, to be able to follow, I don't think, today's um, conversation. But Stephen and Dan Akins kind of went head to head talking about how they read the Bible. And um, Stephen made this claim, I don't know, like three quarters of the way through and said something like, well, I actually don't think the kingdom of God is here yet. And everybody there gasped and clutched their pearls and was like, what are you talking about? Completely because consumed the last 15 minutes of discussion. It, it totally did. <laughs> mm. Well, it was fascinating. And I told Evan before you got here, I thought your case was pretty compelling. Um, it's funny. We just hung out. We had dinner with a pastor the other day that had a shirt on that said, already? Not yet. So we can get to that in a minute. But um, I asked Stephen if he wanted to maybe debate somebody about this idea, the kingdom of God not being here. Is it here? Is it partly here? And he said, yes, but let me at least just kind of establish what I mean. Uh, partly say, so y'all don't think I'm a crazy person, but partly so we're actually debating the real thing. So today is that we're going to set some groundwork, hear what you have to say. Maybe you'll convince us and that'll be a wrap. And maybe we'll think you're still crazy. And, um, you know, we want to get somebody else in here. So maybe just start by like, you know, what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? That's said a lot in the New Testament, but... Yeah, so, I mean, the topic of the kingdom of heaven, the ki kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, I mean, if you really dive into this rabbit hole, even people will argue about, are those two the same thing? Mm. Like, yeah. kingdom of heaven versus kingdom of God? I think they are, so need to can just take that whole, whole awesome. discussion off the table. But uh, <laughs> it's used throughout the New Testament, and particularly what's strange about it, in my opinion, is it doesn't really get clearly defined mm -hmm. anywhere in the New Testament, but you have a whole lot of parables that Jesus tells about it mm -hmm. to try and say the kingdom of heaven is like. You probably, if you've read the New Testament, that phrase rings a bell for you because yeah. you read it so many times. And then you have people talking about the kingdom a lot. But never really saying what it is. Yeah. And that's in the New Testament. And this phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, doesn't really show up in the Old Testament in that, like, mode. You don't right. see the teachings phrase. about the kingdom of God. You see teachings about a lot of other stuff. And so, kind of where I, I grew up, kind of believing the same basic already not yet that I think a lot of, uh, a lot of evangelical Christians hold to about the kingdom of heaven, that it's here spiritually and it, we have this, we, we get, the way I usually hear it described is we get the spiritual benefits of the kingdom in the present, and there it will be fully realized when mm -hmm. Jesus returns. And that's usually the extent of people's, if they've thought about it at all, which I find that a lot of Christians haven't even thought about it at yeah. all. We just use the language, and we don't think at all what it means. We're just like, yeah, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Well, what do you mean by that is yeah. really the question I'm, I wanted to get at. And when I started digging into that, I went to the Old Testament and I started coming to conclusions about what I think the kingdom of heaven is, and that really, really changed how I understand the passages in the New Testament about the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of like at least the 
where all this got started for me. Yeah. Is this is this one of those things where like, depending on how you define it, it could be this or that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It like, it it comes back as so many things do. It comes back to hermeneutics. Your understanding of how do you interpret the Bible? What what do you mean by the words that were used? What did the Bible writers mean when mm-hmm. they said something? Yeah. But I find a problem when I when I bring up this topic and when I discuss it is quite often actually every time I've ever discussed this with people, it's that initial knee jerk, what do you mean the kingdom's not here? How can you possibly even be a Christian and not believe the kingdom of heaven is here? You're obviously some kind of heretic and just conversation just gets shut down. Mm-hmm. And if you look into the historical debate about this, that it was kind of an open question. There were there were people who argued it was fully here. There were people who argued it wasn't here at all. There, the already not yet, which is the dominant view nowadays, uh, wasn't really on anybody's radar f- for most of church history. Interesting. <laughs> uh, who thinks it's here all the way? Let me a couple quick things before we even keep going. One, yeah. the kingdom of heaven is not the same as what people mean when they say heaven. When people say heaven, they mean when everything is as it should be, ultimately fine. Jesus has come back, regardless of your view of how things will go then, but eventually new heavens, new earth. That, nobody thinks that's here. No one thinks we're living in as good as it gets. Heaven. Right. Quote, unquote. Okay. But even that, it's like you ask people, what do you mean by heaven? And most people think, oh, floating on the clouds, golden harps, they right? They not think that. And it's yeah. like, no, very earthy. A new earth is what we're promised right. as Christians, not floating around in, in space. Right. Uh, but th- it's I, th- I think it starts there, and then it, it feeds its way back. We have a bad understanding of heaven from mostly Plato's philosophy, in fact, okay. Christianity. And then we say we have this idea of heaven as being this disembodied spiritual state, yeah. floating around on the clouds. And we're like, well, the kingdom of heaven must have similar characteristics. And so what does it mean for the kingdom of heaven to exist? Which makes it easier for it to be spiritual. Which makes it a whole yeah. lot easier to be spiritual. But if you have a good, clear understanding of what the Bible paints as a picture of, well, the eternal state post-resurrection is new earth. Yeah. Right? Better. It's paradise. Yeah. It's the, the garden made new yeah. and better here on earth. Well, that kind of also sort of messes with your understanding of the kingdom of heaven then. Mm-hmm. And so I I guess I, I can just give you kind of like my thought process of, of how I came about it and then backtrack to yeah. where I see the evidence. So I, that was the thought process I went down. It was like, okay, I see the Old Testament trying to figure out what is the kingdom. I see the New Testament and where we're going is mm-hmm. new earth. Mm-hmm. And if the beginning of this whole story is talking about one thing and I think it's talking when it says when it's talking about the kingdom and the promises made to Israel primarily what's going to happen in the future they're all earthy they're all physical they're all you'll live in the land and prosper materially and then you get to the end and it's on the earth and it's like well why then in the middle is it totally different where's the continuity there which I find really funny because the covenant theologians who generally are the ones we're arguing with the most on this. That, that was the mini TOT was yeah. covenant theology versus dispensationalism are the ones who are so big on continuity, but this yeah, is one huge, and such. Yeah. <laughs> huge discontinuity that they're comfortable with. It's like physical kingdom, spiritual kingdom, physical kingdom. Hmm. And I think, well, no, the word kingdom means the same thing. Yeah. Uh, or at the very least, the word kingdom can mean multiple things, but whenever you use it, you mean something. So, like the example I use this when I'm when I'm teaching hermeneutics uh, is all words get their get their meaning from context, and the word trunk, right? If I just throw out the word trunk, what do you think of? It could be either it could be Some a car p- trunk or a tree trunk or an elephant's trunk, yeah, or a cedar or trunk where you a cedar oh, yeah. trunk, a chest, your, yeah. right? Or someone's middle section, yeah, uh, right? All of these different words are legitimate meanings of the word trunk, but when I say it, I mean one of them. Sure. You can't think to your, oh, I can't be like, oh, I saw a trunk at the zoo. Probably, okay, we've narrowed down the the, the candidates to elephant or tree. Yeah. And if, like, if I saw the elephant's trunk, okay, you can't think to yourself, you're talking about a cedar chest. Mm-hmm. Sure. And have that be what I mean. Yeah. Similar thing here. Whenever, whenever you see the word kingdom, it can have multiple meanings in different contexts. But in a particular context, it has a meaning that mm-hmm. the person who used it meant. Love it. So what did those people mean? And I see... The majority of the times that I see the word kingdom used, I see they're talking about a physical realm, like with borders and grass mm-hmm. and a guy Building. sitting on a throne yeah. 
who rules like over... Like David or Solomon. Exactly. Yeah. The kingdom of, in this case, who's sitting on the throne? Jesus. God. Yeah. That's what we mean by kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, using those terms interchangeably. So are we, are we looking only at New Testament? You mentioned Old Testament, but I mean, even in Old Testament, like, Israel wasn't a kingdom until it had kings, right? That's true. So, because they had judges for a while and then... Right. And he, I and don't he think two kingdoms. you don't really see the 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 uh, promises about what I, what I would consider promises about the kingdom of God in the mm. New Testament until the era of the prophets when there is a, a king. Gotcha. Okay, so they're kind of uh, looking forward to the kingdom done right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. And that was when I started particularly the the passage in the Old Testament that really got me. That was like, how do I deal with this? Was Amos nine, and these are scattered through. I have a list of like you love 40. Amos. I do love Amos. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, I, I have a big list, but I only picked three or four to actually look at because time, you know, <laughs> that's a thing. Uh, also, while I'm thinking of it, um, for listeners who didn't hear the mini TOT and maybe don't know the difference between covenantal or dispensationalist, oh boy. do we need to give like a one sentence definition of each so that- Do we? For this? Do we? I mean, people who hold my view are almost exclusively dispensationalists and people who are strong on the, the kingdom now and, and who know what they're talking about are pretty exclusively covenantalists. So it does okay. kind of break down on okay. those lines pretty clearly. The the really, really brief covenantal theology, I think I'm being fair, is saying, uh, and I married one. So, like, I love these guys. Like, covenant theology, I'm friendly with. I, I don't think that there Real should be as friendly. much en- enmity. Yeah. Uh, but covenantal theology well, says... only with those he marries. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> only those who can get along with me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> good little qualifier. Yeah. yeah. Covenant theology says uh, there's there's one continuous covenant that God has been working with uh, humanity, and it's the covenant of grace since the fall. Uh, and all of the different iterations of the stories that you see in the Bible all fit into that covenant. Okay. And you have, like, m- the Mosaic covenant begins and ends within that. Yeah. And some co- but Abrahamic this covenant is... Abrahamic and the Davidic and then, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and all of those are, are iterations of one eternal covenant. Okay. And, and everything, now, everything we see in the church age is interpreted through that lens that this is just a new picture of this behind the scenes eternal covenant going okay. on. Uh, dispensationalism actually recognizes a lot of those things. They just don't, we just don't like using the word covenant to describe that. And we would say the different covenants within the Bible, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant are different covenants. And, uh, and the different periods of time or dispensations uh, eras where God was administering himself to humanity change. So you have like the period of the law where Moses and what he wrote kind of dictates how mm-hmm. humans interact with God. And then you have had different different periods. Right now we're in the period of grace. Uh, there's a whole lot more to flesh out there. But yeah. uh, when you get to the end times then, like what's going to happen in the future, dispensationalists, will largely say there's another dispensation, another era of time called the millennium, the millennial kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Covenant theologians will say, no, no, we are the millennium. The The church is the the, the metaphorical, the, that thousand-year reign described in Revelation 20 is metaphorical. That's describing the church age, and we're living in it right now. Mm-hmm. This thousand years has taken a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm I land more covenant, but so I could see how a plain reading okay. is kind of like what? anyway. And so, like I said, I I love I I love the covenant theologians. We're really good friends. Yeah, it uh, was a really like non contentious debate. It was they were really nice to each other, and they kept yeah. going, "Oh, dang, I agree! Yeah. Wow, I didn't think I would agree. I really agree." But yeah. but on a dispensational view, then is is would it lend itself to thinking that the kingdom then is like the next dispensation? So it's kind of a, there's kind of a break. It's kind of a change. Whereas the covenantal would kind of see, you know, they could, they can see the covenant as being kind of an ongoing reality because if we're living under one covenant, you know, like once the king, I mean, it really, I, I think this is going to come down to like, well, we, we would agree that Christ is king. So therefore it's like, to what degree is he here? Is yeah. that mm-hmm. kind of where we're going to end yeah, up? Yeah, exactly. Okay. To what degree is he here? Okay. And what do you mean by here? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, like he's not sitting there. So it's gonna get. He's, it's, we're gonna he lives get, in our hearts. It's, gonna, it's gonna get very sacramental. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like oh, this is yeah. where Lutherans end up. This is why we are so like <laughs> outcast. <laughs> well, we are. We are in many ways, but you know, I think I think Lutherans. I'll just say, you know, 
not, you know, but like, yeah, the, the presence of Christ, this is why we fought so hard for the presence of Christ in the bread and wine. Yeah. It's because like we wanted to find a way. And I mean, we, we think we're expressing the way that Christ is still here. Exactly. I mean, he does say, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So then we figure out, well, well, how is he with in, us? What, what does way? that mean? In how does way? that work? Fair enough. I agree. And that's uh, what I love about that example too, is, is it really does show how, how your theology is, is the, the classic phrase, a seamless garment. What you believe in one area is going to affect what you believe in another area, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I fully admit that what I believe about the millennium, what I believe about the future, certainly feeds into my understanding of the kingdom. Yeah. And I can totally see how, if you're coming from a totally different framework that says the millennium is metaphorical, well, yeah, lots of these passages you're going to read in a different way. You're going to say, okay, I think what he meant when he said those words was... A okay, metaphor, but, spiritual reality. But covenantal like folk can be pre or post mill, right? Yes, post post mill and a mill and a covenant, not pre mill. You can technically be a premillennial covenant okay. theologian, and that, they're, and they're that, a very weird unicorn. Okay, and, and well, I think Oscar Villanueva is probably one of those. Yeah. Okay, and He's probably most dispensationalists would say I'm one of those. Okay, because dispensationalists don't like me because of a few things that I. Okay. Reform yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry, nobody likes you. Yeah, I like, like you. you. No, I'm sorry. kidding. We're, we're kidding. <laughs> okay. So all of that as a framework, things like Amos nine. Amos is writing when uh, Israel, you got north and south, and Judah in the south is expecting uh, blessing coming from Amos, and he spends. Almost all of Amos saying, you're the worst people in the world, you're terrible, God's going to judge you for all of these wicked things that you've been doing. And the only good thing he says is at the very end of the book, that's part of why I like Amos, he's like, he does not pull punches, he's just straight to the point, here's why you're also terrible. Uh, <laughs> but starting in verse 11 mm-hmm. of chapter 9, after all that, let me back up, uh, verse 9, Behold, I'm commanding, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as grain is shaken in a sieve. Not a kernel will fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword. Those who say the calamity will not overtake us. Cheery. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> in that day, so when God is judging Israel most harshly, the world, you, if you read earlier, he's he's gotten through everybody on the earth at this point as being judged by the sword. Okay. In that day, I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. I think most people read that and go, okay, that sounds like a metaphorical description of the church age. Raise up the fallen booth of David, that's Christ. And all of the peoples of the nations who are called by my name, those are Christians, right? Jew and and Greek coming Mm -hmm. together in one, being called Mm -hmm. by the name of God. Then verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved, also I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not be again uprooted out of their land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. The last thing he says is a promise to Israel, is what he calls them, my people Israel, bring them back to their land, plant them, and give them material blessings. Vineyards won't run dry, gardens always producing fruit, right? It's it's the life of luxury is what you're promised as a restoration, and it's pretty clearly either concurrent with or post the church age. To me, that I read that and I go, okay, rebuilding the city and the people of Israel being brought back to the land, if I believe God's actually going to do that, unless... I, I just don't see how you read those sentences and come away with, well, what he's talking about is is metaphorical spiritual blessings. No, I agree with you on that. So, Like when I read this, and again, you've read it with all, I mean, and given a lot more thought to it. I'm just reading it sort of first glance. Also, what version are you reading? I'm just curious. Uh, NASB. Okay. Um, but still, the same idea comes through on mine, but to me, it sounds like he's describing what I would call like a new heavens and a new earth. And and to me, it's, you know, like this is what it'll be like one day when everything is made new and made right. 
because it's also talking about what's happening right after judgment. Okay. So, yeah. And then, okay. So yeah, those are those are your two options. Uh, either okay. he's talking about millennial kingdom, or he's talking about new heavens, new earth, or he's talking about both. Yeah. Uh, I see what you're saying. If it's millennial kingdom, then it's now. Um, according to the people that believe that that, that is the now. millennial kingdom. Okay, is now. so it really does matter about your eschatology. The eschatology yeah. really does factor into this, but what you believe about Israel factors into that, right? I mean, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined city, and they they will I will plant them on their land, and the land that we're talking about, everybody know, like this gets established really early in the story, Genesis 15. Land stretching from the river Egypt to the river Euphrates, the the promised land. Yeah. And this is one example in a list of like 40 that I have where those kinds of promises, promises to Israel of restoration in their land uh, and specifically material, physical prosperity and blessing is what's expected in this period of restoration. Mm. And this period of restoration in the Old Testament is the closest I, thing I can think of is what they're talking about is what we in the New Testament would call the kingdom of God. Was or there heaven. Was there an immediate application of this? Like, is this is... Like um, a double fulfillment situation? Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, how, how much does God mean what he says? Because if he says, I'll plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land. Okay. Mm. Well, then you can't fulfill this. Gotcha. If, they're, if they got uprooted. You can't be like post-Cyrus okay. sending them back. Yeah. And- yeah. So do we need to, maybe we don't need to get into this and maybe you don't want to get into this, but it feels like maybe part of the question, at least for the Amos passage has to do with what we think he means when he says Israel. Do we want to get into that whole? I mean, we certainly can. Uh, And that's again, we're dispensationalists and I tend to butt heads because I'm willing to give a little bit of room where, where there's times Mm -hmm. in the new Testament where Paul's pretty clearly including Gentiles in the term Israel. Mm -hmm. Right. The Israel Uh, of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Romans nine, uh, where where not all Israel is Israel, and, and all of that, and dispensationalists bite my head off about that. But but when Amos is writing, Israel means at the very least Israel plus, like God's people. Would you, would that be a way of saying it? Like yes. So like Rahab kind of came around, and there were various people that left in the Exodus that weren't Hebrews, but they were then pulled into that you know right. group. They became Israelites, right? And this is where like I'm I'm caught in between both camps because I don't I'm I'm not on board with just saying well the church is Israel, right? Yeah. Every time we t- see Israel in the New Testament, we're talking about the church or sp- spiritual Israel. But I'm not on the dispensationalist side of every time you see Israel, it's literally it's this literally the descendants yeah. of the man named Jacob, yeah, uh, physical descendants from Jacob. Well, no, it's what I think it is. It's it's believing physical descendants of Jacob primarily. With Gentiles grafted in. Yeah. Which is what Paul calls it in Romans 11, right? Mm. The the root, mm-hmm. you were cultivated branches cut mm-hmm. off, wild branches were grafted in in your place. Uh, hmm. But then he says, a partial hardening has come over the hearts of Israel until all the fullness of Gentiles have been grafted in. Then all Israel will be saved. Hmm. Well, if a partial hardening has come over the hearts of Israel, and in that context, I think he's talking about physical, natural Israel, Mm -hmm. until the fullness of the Gentiles are grafted in, Mm -hmm. well, the word until there means, that means the hardening over Israel is going to be... Last as long. Well, then done with. Yeah. And then that natural Israel, the hardening will be lifted, and natural Israel will... Oh, man, it's like a whole other podcast about (laughs) when that happens and what it'll look like, but okay... So all of these things intertwine, right? Like I said, sinless garment. Like all these things are are feeding to it. It's how do you make sense of all of the data in the most yeah. plausible way? Uh, and yeah, so I read all of these promises of the remnant to Israel and the promise of the coming uh, kingdom. The word kingdom is used scattered throughout the Old Testament. Uh, and whenever they talk about a kingdom, they're talking about a physical place. Okay. And every time you see these promises, it's talking about a physical place. It's it's land. It's specifically the promised land. Mm-hmm. That's what they're talking about. In, and I'll just read off the list so you can look them up on your own time. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 33, Jeremiah 30, Amos 9, the one we just read, Micah 4, Micah 5, Zechariah 2, Zechariah 8, 
I think Psalm 2... We can put these in the show notes, too. No yeah. one's at home listening and, like, writing them down. down right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what I'm, saying is, what I'm saying is it's all over the prophets. And I think a big okay. part of the problem with the modern church is we don't know the prophets. <laughs> yeah. Like, They're hard it's, to read. It's a blank stare when you talk talk about the prophets. And I think if we did know the prophets, we would get to the New Testament and we'd ask the same question that I asked and that the disciples kept asking Jesus, which is, all right, you're talking about the kingdom of God. We know what this is. This is the stuff that was promised all throughout the mm-hmm. Old Testament. Mm-hmm. It's Israel and the promised land. Material blessings, flowing with milk and honey, never having to let your vineyards go dry, always having a garden full of fruit, that kind of stuff. Which then gets to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. Yeah. How are we doing on time? <laughs> no, we're good. Okay. No, no time limit at all. All right, yeah. cool. Well, <laughs> I mean. We're not going to be here until the new heavens and the new yeah, earth. All right. Yeah. Well, you never know. That's could, true. We don't know. Yeah. Could be any minute. Hopefully. Uh, I think. The Jesus is te- comes in teaching about the kingdom of God. And here's another thing that I'm convinced of that you might not be, and if not, that's okay, but I see pretty clearly in in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and I think in John also, there's a shift in Jesus' teaching from repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near, to to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been given. He starts out proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand to Israel, and they all know what that means, right? Physical kingdom. The Messiah, he's going to come and establish his rule, his reign on earth. Well, and then they reject him, and the message shifts. And you can see this most clearly in Matthew 13, I think. Uh, so flip over there. There's no flipping. You're typing it in. Yeah. We can all hear you. Metaphorical. Matthew 13, Metaphorical. you said? Yeah. <laughs> Matthew 13. <laughs> uh, this is what you were going to ask him about. Evan had this question queued up. Sorry, I gave it away. No, no. Well, just I mean, the parables in general, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jesus answered them to you. It had been granted. So Matthew 13, verse 11. This is right after he gives the parable of the scattered seeds. And this is at, right after in chapter 12, where the Pharisees have, have said, you cast out demons by Beelzebul. They've accused him of, of, of doing the work of the devil. And in my opinion, that's the point where Jesus goes, all right, we're done with this. Kingdom of heaven is not at hand anymore. To put it really bluntly, hmm. like what's happened? Well, you've rejected it, so now it's it's put away. Whoa, whoa, whoa! We're, we're postponing it. <laughs> You're gonna have to say that again and explain because that sounds like a really big shift, right? And like Jesus changed his mind. Hey guys, Sarah here. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I know it was awesome, but I just wanted to tell you that Theology on Tap is growing. We are now a standalone ministry, an independent nonprofit. And to grow, we need your help. We're offering more live events, more follow-up opportunities to reach the unchurched, and increased partnerships with local churches. You can help us grow by praying for us, by telling your friends or church about us, and of course, partnering with us financially. To donate, go to houstontot.com forward slash give. Okay, enjoy the rest of the show. Well, I I would say all of this is according to the four ordained providence of god that he planned for israel to reject the messiah and the kingdom would be postponed so that the gentiles would be grafted in okay Uh, okay but but say that thing again that you just said about when he tells the story and then the pharisees accuse him of basically being in satan's camp what was happening according to you they accuse him of being in satan's camp he he says again i'm paraphrasing or summarizing from my theology but he says basically all right i was offering you the kingdom it was at hand not anymore. Kingdom of heaven is not at hand anymore. Instead, my ministry, the main message of my ministry shifts from the kingdom of heaven is at hand to I'm going to start talking about the kingdom of heaven in parables so that the people of Israel don't understand it. So that Ooh. they who have rejected me, they will not they will not get it. The Gentiles, the, the message will then go out to the Gentiles. They will believe. They'll be grafted in to believing Israel. And then we'll bring the kingdom at my second coming. So many questions. First, why in the world would he just keep telling parables then? If they're not meant to bring any kind of clarity or hope or... Well, they're meant to bring just... clarity to those who have ears to hear. Okay. So let me, let me who are those read that it. Have ears this, to hear? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those who believe, right? Believe that he is the Messiah, right? His claim of I'm the Messiah. Okay. I'm here. I'm offering Israel the kingdom. You accept it and you're in, right? Mm-hmm. It was a legitimate offer in the sense that like supposing they they would have accepted it then the kingdom of heaven would have been established but israel 
didn't accept it, and that was always the plan. Man, that is a bold claim, Stephen. And again, okay. this is where Sorry. this is really common in the dispensational camp. Okay. But I get that it's it's wacky the first time you hear it, and it's like, please don't stop listening just because it sounds crazy. No, that makes me want to listen more. <laughs> uh, but okay, starting in verse ten, where he's explaining the parable, and the disciples came and said to him, "Why do you speak to them in parables?" And this is his answer. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Them being Israel, or the leaders of Israel, the Pharisees, and and the general Israelite who's waiting for the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom. For whoever has has to him, more shall be given, and him who has an abundance. uh, But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the hearts of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. As in all of those promises of restoration that was given to Israel all through the Old Testament, I would give them if they would hear, but they will not. That's kind of where all this goes. And then you get four chapters of parable after parable after parable about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. And in my opinion, one of the one of the main things you see throughout all of these parables is a common theme of it's there, it's put away for a time, and then it comes back bigger and better. Hmm. Right? The pearl of great price. A man sees a pearl, he... He loves it. He leaves, sells all he has, comes back and buys the pearl. He finds a treasure in a field, mm-hmm. buries it, goes back, sells all he has, comes back and buys the field. Kingdom of Heaven is like a mustard seed. It's a tiny little seed. He plants it, and later it's a tree that gives shade to everyone. The theme that I see repeated in all these parables is the Kingdom of Heaven was there, tiny. It was offered, and so interpreting then, it was offered to Israel, Jesus came, and where Jesus was, he was the kingdom, right? Where the mm-hmm. king is, there is kingdom. When he was walking around on earth, this is actually how I explain one of the problem passages of, uh, you would understand that the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. He's talking about himself, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I'm right here. I'm the king, right? But yeah. you don't understand. You don't understand that I'm the king and that I have control of the kingdom. And so, since Israel rejects that offer of the kingdom, it's put away. It's buried in the field. It's left in the stall. And then it comes back bigger and better. It's worth everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it He comes back and buys the whole field. It's got Gentiles grafted in is kind of the point, in my opinion. Now, I realize I'm about to do something circular here, but I'm just going to pretend I'm in the audience and I haven't thought about your answer to this. If they had not rejected him... Which is then, a huge if. I know. Like, that's why I'm cause, saying... Because is it even possible? No, because God... Had, right. It's like... If God preordained from the... Be- right. Yeah, yeah. It's that question. But keep going. Well, yeah. Because you know the question probably is then, so Gentiles would never have yeah. been part of the whole story. In the same way that if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the apple... Right. Then Jesus Apple's would never... Stop with that. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> Sorry. The same way that if man had never fallen, we never would have needed Jesus. In the same way as that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Israel had accepted the offer of the kingdom, then then Gentiles would never have been grafted in. So thank goodness they did reject it. Yeah. And that's what us. Paul says in Romans 11. Okay. And so I reference so we Romans like 11. should the hard-hearted Pharisees. Yeah. They did us a favor, according to your... The Gentiles should. Uh, yeah, well, Romans 11. Are Gentiles. If you don't know Romans really well, great book, obviously. Great book. I li- five stars. Would recommend. <laughs> 9 through 11, he's talking about Israel, right? Chapter 9 starts out with, what then about my my people, my kinsmen Israel? I am deeply moved in my spirit at the hardness of Israel's hearts. And he spends three chapters talking about the fate of Israel. And he cl- ends with this. Uh, it gives the whole example of the olive olive tree and the root being Israel and the branches that were natural being cut off so Gentiles could be grafted in. And then he says in verse 25, Romans eleven twenty-five. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, this is where he explains. 
from the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies. They being Israel, right? The Jews. Okay. From the standpoint of the gospel, the Jews are enemies. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Hmm. For the gift and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you once were disobedient to God, you Gentiles, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have become disobedient, the Jews who have rejected the Messiah, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. What he's saying there is, yeah, Israel got hardened so that Gentiles would be grafted in and shown mercy. And now the Gentiles are being shown mercy to make the, the hardened Israelites jealous so that they will repent and also be shown mercy. And it's this master plan of God to work it all together to save all those whom he will. So I'm going to also be the kind of uh, newbie audience member here. Yeah. It's different than devil's advocate. It's newbie advocate. So are you saying that Jewish people then, and maybe even Jewish people now, who are hardened to the idea of Jesus being king, Jesus being Messiah, mm. that there's going to be a, almost against their will, unhardening of their heart at some point where they will be part of the kingdom? I mean, yeah, I, I pray for that, not just for Jewish people, but for all people. But if we're talking about corporate levels, I think that this passage says, yeah, on a corporate level, Jews by and large have been hardened against Jesus as the Messiah. And there will come a time where God reaches down and removes that hardening. Hmm. What do you mean by against their will? Yeah, I mean, I I take a pretty firm view of election that God foreordains whom he wills, that his grace is irresistible when he yeah. wants to regenerate you, he does. And you don't get to say like, Oh, well, no, I'd, yeah. I'd rather have, you know... So we don't need to worry God. about uh, evangelizing to Jewish people. Well, uh, no, for the same reason that God foreordains to... to uh, no, no to your question. Like, we do need to worry about evangelizing oh. to Jewish people. <laughs> so I'm Let glad you clarified. Uh, yeah. No, we do need to worry about evangelizing to everyone. Yeah. Uh, because anybody who's hardened by God against him needs to... To hear the gospel preached. How will they believe if they have not been if they have not heard? And how will they hear if no one? But preaches? according to you, they're going to get this basically second chance anyway. So we should really put our efforts toward the people that are like mm, on the fence, and we don't know. I guess I don't really like that. Describes everybody who's not in God's camp now. Yeah. So right now, say we have three friends, and one of our friends, two of our friends are atheists, just and they're not of Jewish descent, and one of our friends is. A practicing Jew that is like still waiting on the Messiah, but is like, I do not. Like, we just had a guy in the studio a couple weeks ago. It's a rabbi, and he's like, No, 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 one man does not die for the sins of other people. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyway. So, if we have those three friends and we have so much energy to evangelize, it seems like it would make more sense to evangelize to the atheists that aren't Jewish because they're not necessarily going to have this unhardening moment. I mean, we don't know. The objection you're bringing up is the same one that you bring up against anybody who believes in election, right? It's like, well, if, I don't think so. Because if God's going to save save whom He will, but then we don't why know we who those people are, and that's my point. We don't know which Jews are are foreordained to be unhardened at oh. this at this corporate unhardening or okay, because okay, that was the question. I'm, okay, so I'm not saying that all. Jews That's reject what I thought the Messiah. you were saying. Okay. Because clearly a remnant has believed because the guy writing this is Jewish. Sorry. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So all of the early Christians were Jews. It's just that if by and large, like the corporate like if you were if you were to say uh is is uh Iran a, a Muslim nation? Yeah. Yeah. Iranians are Muslim. Yeah. Uh well, does that mean every single person who's got Iranian citizenship is Muslim? No. No, of course not. Same thing here, right? The Jews, by and large, like there's going to be a corporate mass return and, or repentance and belief in the Messiah, in my opinion, based on this verse. Okay. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to reach individual Jews in our lives here and now or that some will not believe. No. Uh, it's just that if you're going to like talk about the general truths, yeah, th the average, like the, the majority of Jews don't believe the Messiah. That's why they're Jews. Yeah. And at some point in time in the future, the majority of Jews left on earth will believe in the Messiah. That okay. this partial hardening that's come over the, the hearts of Israel will be removed, and then all Israel will be saved. Man, this is uh, this is new and different, to me at least. Evan, is it something you've thought about before? Or? I don't know. 
I can't well, read Evan's no. face. He looks so neutral. And I'm over here like, this is crazy. Well, dis- dispensationalism is, is not something Lutherans ever talk about. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's just like 100% foreign. So we, we default into a covenantal camp. So, um, so we would default into the already, not yet, you know, and understanding my, the kingdom. Like so. dispensationalists hate the way that I talk about this. And it's like, I don't want to lose the people who are like, well, yeah, I default in this camp and it's just not like, yeah, I was there too on the other side of that fence. Yeah. Like, join me on the fence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to get back to, to um, I don't know, I mean, I guess kind of the, the broader point of like whether Jesus is here now or not, or or whether, I guess, I guess maybe my bigger question would be, is it possible that God... That, that the kingdom of God in some way can be initiated already, can be, can be something we are participating in now, even with all of the muck we see in the world. Because, in part, okay, I agree with you, Jesus was the king, and although I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not he sort of became king in that sense, you know, what, when his ministry began, when he was baptized, mm. when he was anointed by John the Baptist? Where was the, the coronation? Yeah. You know, what about when he was 27? He was just making a sofa. I would think you it's, know. if you want to pick a, a point... It's either at the incarnation or, I think more likely, at the resurrection when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go make disciples. Oh, okay. Well, see, I thought you were going to say, okay, so, okay, okay, so Jesus is a king. We agree with that. Yeah. Wherever he goes, the kingdom is there. We agree with that. Yeah. We would probably, wouldn't we agree then that like part of the demonstration of this physical kingdom, because you're talking about being a physical king like a place, Right, where good things are happening, right? Mm-hmm. And when so, when he's healing people, and he heals all these people, they all come to the house, and they're putting them through the roof, and he's feeding five thousand people. Those are all manifestations of that physical kingdom, right? Yeah, I think okay. the Mount of Transfiguration is is a, a vision of Jesus coming in his kingdom. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I, well, it's, we would definitely say it's a it's a foreshadowing that the apostles looked back to. Hence, Second Peter, you know, makes explicit reference to it, right? Yeah. And he um, says, and when that happens, in all the synoptics, it's like some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man yeah. coming in the kingdom. Next scene, Mount of Transfiguration, like, yeah, promise fulfilled. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but like, but um, but like even phone. so, even though Jesus was king, even though kingdom things were happening, you know, healings. Raising people from the dead, feeding five thousand people, etc. Like the 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 land still at the whole was experiencing hardship. There yeah. were still hungry people. There were mm-hmm. still he he almost certainly did not heal everybody. Although I think there's some kind of like a what is that called um, over exaggeration where some of the gospels are like he healed everyone. <laughs> uh, and, you know, those are probably figures of speech. But even if he did, I think we would still agree that day after he healed everyone, there was some kid who broke his leg or whatever, right? right? So, so like even so, here's my point: if it is the case that when Jesus was manifest, was being king, was doing kingdom things in a physical way during that two year period, three year period, one year period, whatever it may be, and it wasn't perfect. Then couldn't that still be true today? That there that the kingdom could still be spread far and wide, where the Christ is in mm-hmm. some way present with us, and things are mm-hmm. still not good. I would, but could be a lot worse. I, I would say you can't mm-hmm. have the it, it comes back to the language we use. the The question of whether or not the kingdom is quote unquote here now, and was the kingdom there then? Well, Jesus always proclaimed it was at hand; it was near. Mm-hmm. The one time where it kind of, he kind of gets close to saying it's here now is when he says you would see that the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And in that sense, I think this is where I didn't want to get into Greek because I <laughs> tried to – I was going to avoid bringing up Greek. Uh, but <laughs> the word for kingdom in Greek – Basileia. Ah, it's like the one Greek word I remember. Okay. <laughs> Basileia. Uh, it, this is true in the Old Testament – and the New Testament, the word for for kingdom in Hebrew and in, in the word kingdom, just like the word trunk, means different things in different contexts. And sometimes the word basileia refers to rule, reign, authority. Sometimes it re- refers to you know a plot of land with a border and grass and and a guy sitting on a throne. Sometimes it refers to. Sometimes it seems like it just refers to the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That one's a little well, bit more dicey. You see that when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard owner. Yeah. And you're like, oh, the kingdom is actually the dude. Yeah. I keep going. And that's exactly my point is like, well, when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, then what did the Jews 
have in their heads when they said it, when Jesus mm-hmm. was teaching it, did he always mean the same thing? I think in some contexts, mm-hmm. he uses the word to talk about himself, sometimes he uses the word to just talk about his authority and his power. And if that's all we mean by the kingdom of heaven is here, then then I agree with that. Gotcha. That God is still powerful over all things. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, the kingdom of heaven never left, Right. The kingdom of heaven was there before Jesus came, and the kingdom of heaven yeah. was near after he came. Yeah, but I, as, I will say, I as a Lutheran wouldn't, wouldn't love that description. Okay. So, so, for example, um, and I love the way, I don't know if this is, I think this is a Lutheran thing, like, like actual Martin Luther, right? But mm-hmm. if not, it was people later. And I, I love the way they, they talk about this, which is, you know, basically, yes, God can be everywhere. God can be anywhere. You might even say in some sense God is everywhere. Although that gets in like panentheism or something. Yeah, I don't want to go there. And I don't like omnipresence as a doctrine because it's like, no, God's not everywhere. He yes. can be anywhere. Yes. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So let's go with that. Specificity of language. That's but, what I'm talking about. Yes. Okay. But what Lutherans say is, but God said that he would be here for you in this way. Right. So okay. so for us, the means of grace this is what I teach all my confirmation kids. Means mm-hmm. of grace are word and sacrament. Mm-hmm. Why do we distinguish those those things? Well, those are where God promised he would be right. Mm-hmm. He he's, he said he would show up during these times, you know. Now we, I'm not going to get into a whole communion debate, but you know <laughs> this. You know uh, this is my body given for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. Yeah. Uh, and and in baptism there are you know seem to be unusual sort of promises associated with that water and these words. Mm-hmm. And it's a you know command we're given to do at the Great Commission. So uh, these things seemed of heightened importance, you know. And then of course we believe Hebrews four. You know the word is living and active. Well, what does that mean? You know, sharper than any two-edged sword. I mean, that seems to... Fun in, in, take, I think he's talking about Jesus, but... Oh, okay. Ooh. Okay. Well, well, I mean, and you can, you know, is the word Jesus or the Bible, and it's kind of like, yeah. well, yes, because, you know, it's inspired by the Spirit, and we don't want to tear apart the Trinity, etc. Anyway, my, but, my, my but point it, is that Jesus, uh-huh. that, that God is God is here, not just ubiquitously, yeah. but specifically... We would say through these means of grace, which is why they are means, word and sacrament, and there's a limiting effect to that, but it is real, that his presence is real in that, in some way. And that, so as long as we're being clear, I can get on board with a lot of that. But I noticed the language you used, God is here, not the kingdom of heaven is here. But I assume you're just using them interchangeably, right? Like you would say the kingdom of heaven is here in this real way, in this, in word and sacrament, but that's all. Okay, I want to throw another monkey wrench into this. Mm-hmm. So, if a kingdom is defined by the king, Jesus is king currently, sitting on the throne in we what, what? throne? Next to God, next to the Father. I don't know. Even that's it's symbolic through Ryan's language, belt, right? according yes. to Seventh Day Adventist. But well, and I mean, dispensationalists will get all their knickers in a twist about about what throne is he sitting on? Is he sitting on David's throne, or is he he's, right now he's seated seated at the right hand of the Father? Mm-hmm. That's one I n- don't really get involved with, okay. but I generally agree with the dispensationalists. But, but either way, we agree that Jesus is King and he's currently alive. Yeah. Okay. In heaven. Sure. Fine. Yes. And we would also believe that he has put his Spirit, which is God, in believers, indwelling us. Uh, yes, I'll just, yes. Okay. Uh, we could derail and go on a totally different podcast, uh, but yes. And we're not going to get into, like, you know, hyper-charismatic, although I, my next question does kind of get into that. But, um, so if that's true that God is, so so God is here in as much as the three of us are believers and we are all indwelt with the Holy Spirit, um, and so the sort of geography of god as it were which there's so here's where I, let me let me finish trekking through yeah, my thought process and then i'll get right to that okay uh the the kind of the the two nails in the coffin for me to, to make me go okay i'm pretty convinced in a not yet kingdom just not yet uh because so many of the kingdom passages are are vague and don't relate to timing that much at all uh I was trying to find verses and passages that do nail down the timing of this thing. And so, uh, Matthew 25, 34. Matthew 25 is the eschatology passage in Matthew, right? The the end times mm-hmm. stuff that he talks I'm gonna about. I'm going to ask you to read this more slowly than you read the last because NASB yeah. is a little clunky. Okay. And so, I'm following along and... Um, Those literal translations. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad. It's fine, yeah, but get, I'm just... Yeah. For those that are, you know, are taking it yep. in auditorily, which is most people. 
Yeah. So verse 34 is the key one, but we'll back up to verse 31 just to get the context. Uh, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All right. We're all agreed, I think. This is second coming, yes? Yes. All right. First little clue there. Then he will sit on his throne. Well, that's why I come back to ask you, what throne, right? Well, this says he's going to sit on his glorious throne when he returns after the second coming. Okay. Uh, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a sheep sep- as shepherd. the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To me, I read that and I think, okay, what does it mean to inherit something? Well, it means to get to experience, to, in this case, live in, right? Because it's a kingdom. Like, if you inherit a house, mm-hmm. it's when you take possession of it, when it becomes yours, ownership, and you move in, right? Yeah. So, if it's a kingdom here now, I would say no, because we all agreed this is second coming, that when he, when he does this, and he's saying to the people who are faithful, now you inherit the kingdom. I mean, you could test that metaphor by saying, like, you know, my parents have things I will inherit one day, but I'm still experiencing some of them now. And that's where it's like, okay, then that's where I, I get the, 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 if we're talking about the already not yet, as long as we're clear what we mean. Yeah. And this I had put at the end of my outline, but the already not yet usually ends up being a, a catch-all bucket to explain yeah. verses without being specific, without being clear. It's like, this is part of the already, that's part of the not yet. Well, be specific. What's part of the already? What things mm-hmm. associated with the kingdom can I plan on now? <clears throat> I love how clear you were. The things associated with the kingdom you can plan on now are the sacraments and the word. And that's it, right? Mm, Fellowship okay. of the saints? Or yeah. any kind of restoration, <clears throat> right? And by the way, this is where we're going to get into our final, like, why does this matter? Mm. So if anyone's actually still sticking with this, <laughs> who isn't a theology nerd, they may be asking themselves that question. It's like, who cares? If Stephen's right or not, you know? And that's, again, what I'd say for the end, but I'll drop it now and we can revisit. But the the logical end, in my opinion, of kingdom already here is the prosperity gospel. Which I was actually going to agree with you right. about. Yeah. Yeah. If the kingdom is here, well, we should expect certain things from the kingdom all throughout the Old Testament, material yep. blessings. And if the kingdom's here, well, then I should expect material blessings. I don't see material blessings. And if it doesn't seem like it is, we need to be doing more. And this is my beef with hyper-charismatic stuff, which Mm -hmm. often has some prosperity gospel sprinkled in, is, and I experienced this recently with a group, I I won't name the group, but uh, who are very, um, like, they would say the phrase, which on its its first listen, you're like, that sounds lovely. It's like, we are bringing God's kingdom here. Mm -hmm. We are bringing it here. And there's this idea that we're not just partnering with, but like we're responsible for bringing God's kingdom here, building God's kingdom. And it's this never ending, relentless pursuit. And you can never be working hard enough. And the onus is on us to create the perfect worship space and create the perfect conversation and create, create, create where we're not really our job. Which is where I really respect the post-millennialists because they say the same stuff, but they've dealt with the passages. It's like, no, we believe we are building the kingdom and that we're going to usher in the kingdom and we we might already be living in the, the startings of it, but yeah. But, but they're also really dependent on the spirit to do those things. Yeah. You know, I think they would say, I mean, we need revival for yeah. that to even be a possibility. I mean, there is a strain of the, in the charismatic world, like dominionism that like takes a good concept of dominion and just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it's like block by block, street by street. We're going to take dominion over for God or something like that. So, so, but like when you your wife is about to have a baby mm-hmm. sometime soon, and maybe, I don't know y'all's thoughts on this, and we don't need to get personal, but she she at least has the option of getting an epidural to help with the pain. Some would say that's a kind of a silly example, but it's a real example of us sort of, un, not us, but God through us and modern technology sort of undoing Bringing parts of the curse. The, yeah. Yeah, right? Like there's mm. restoration happening even now. It's not full, but it's not... Yeah, and to that silly example, I'll give a silly answer, but it's okay. like, if that's your expectation of the promises of God, set your sights higher. <laughs> well, it's just the beginning. It's a foretaste. <laughs> like, you like, know? Yeah, but like, like, what is promised is so much better than what we have here. Agreed, but an epidural is so much better than a not epidural. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, th- 
I'm I'm not really being tongue in cheek. It's a it's one tiny example of one piece of the curse in Genesis. I haven't thought too much about this because I don't and have I don't to deal need with the, it. The answer but... <laughs> about the epidural as much as just do you think that there is? I think most all millennials would say, most Presbyterians would say. God is restoring the earth even now through us as we partner with him. People that are, you know, have the spirit are, are making the world better. And we are ushering in God's kingdom because we are God through us is restoring things. That's funny. That sounds more post-millennial to me, to my pre-millennial it's restoring, years. not restored. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I get what they're saying. And again, I just think that they're setting their sights too low. And I think that they're just mm-hmm. kind of they're they're playing a little bit fast and loose with these kinds of passages, yeah. right? That Jesus gives timings sometimes for when things are going to happen. Now he doesn't say he doesn't say when it's going to happen, but he says this this is going to happen and then this is going to happen, right? He gives the order of things, but not the time of things. Okay. Uh, and I I put all those passages together and I go I got to land on a premillennial kingdom where Jesus comes in, ushers in a physical, literal kingdom on earth hmm. for israel and this is the last verse that i'll share yeah, to, yeah. to lay out my view and then then we can talk mm-hmm. about all these other things is acts chapter one acts chapter one uh so uh, i'll just start at verse one the the first account i composed theophilus about all that jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these also he presented himself. So here's verse 3 is the the key verse. To these also he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. Verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father had promised... Uh, for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what are they waiting for? That God promised the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, all right, pause real quick. Let me recap. 40 days he's been alive, teaching them specifically about the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. And this is their last few seconds with him on earth before the ascension. 40 days of teaching on one topic... The last question they ask is, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, argument from silence, I grant, but I think it's a darn compelling one that Jesus' response isn't, have you not been listening to me for 40 days? The kingdom of heaven is spiritual. It's here Mm. now. You're ushering it in. The Holy Spirit is the kingdom of heaven. They don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Well, but he's, they know it's going to come, right? Okay. But it was like some sort of response along those lines of, you're so dense, like yeah. 40 days of teaching on this, and I'm about to ascend. And that's not his response at all. He does not even rebuke them and say, no, the kingdom of heaven won't be restored to Israel. It's metaphorical. The church has replaced <laughs> Israel. Doesn't say any of that. He says, it's not for, you know, the times or epochs that the father has fixed with his own authority implying, in my opinion, that the kingdom will be restored to Israel. <laughs> this physical yeah. place with with people who are physically descended from Jacob, believing physical descendants of Jacob, right? People who actually accept Jesus as the Messiah, but Israel nonetheless. It's like he's a fancy way of saying, not yet. Not yet. I know. I, it's I been postponed. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, what, but what will happen, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That, that during this time, before we restore the kingdom of Israel, you've got a job to do. to do. Graft in the Gentiles. Yep. Preach the gospel. Yeah. Uh, the good news of the kingdom. And all throughout the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, all throughout Acts and the rest of the epistles, with a couple of exceptions that I can go through, but for time we might not. Oh, we won't. He... Uh, all throughout those those passages, there's just teaching about the kingdom. They were going around proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. They were never explicitly saying, the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. The kingdom of heaven is here. Join the kingdom. There are actually times where, where they specifically say, you may 
enter the kingdom through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom Mm -hmm. we will go to the kingdom and i I mean you get the impression that they thought it was coming soon yeah like in their lifetime Mm -hmm. yeah they were certainly hoping at the very least can i can i ask a question to kind of cash this out because we are short on time i remembered i have a baseball commitment i thought we had no i know know. um (laughs) the um so have we been abandoned no not at all How's that? Flesh it out. The, the Holy Spirit. I'm just being, I'm just being and this difficult. Is, yeah, absolutely. And I, I appreciate it. Yeah. And that's what, I'm not saying that God's abandoned us. Literally, all I'm saying is the word kingdom refers to, in yeah. many contexts, a physical place okay. do with you, the king ruling on earth. And even, that's not here yet. Do you even distinguish between the kingly nature of Christ versus the counselor nature, if you will, the advocate nature mm. of the spirit? Because we, we would say the spirit is... Yeah, and I would I mean, distinguish that. Okay. Yeah, I would say the spirit, the helper, the comforter is not the same thing as the king okay. sitting on his throne. Okay. They're they're it's, both God, fully tr- God. Yeah, no, uh, I hear you. you. Trinitarian distinctions and, yeah. you know, we end up with like, well, can they have can they have different roles? Can they do different things? Yeah, and certainly. Say, yes, the God the Father yeah. didn't die on the cross yes, and the yes. Holy Spirit doesn't sit on, on the king's throne. Yeah. Uh, so, um, aside from let's not err into prosperity gospel, we're expecting all the blessings and speaking of, um, you know, fruit not growing, I've been growing these tomato plants for months and they flower, but don't fruit. So I'm waiting for the kingdom too. Yeah. But, um, is there any other like reason why this matters other than just having nifty theological debates? Like, is there any sort of like, and whenever you ask the question, does this matter? It's, it's the answer is always how much, right? If it's yeah. in the Bible, it matters. Yeah. We would all agree with that. But the question is how much, right? Some debates don't matter, don't have the same negative consequences for being wrong as others. Right. Right. So does this matter? Well, I mean, knowing what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom, I think matters a whole lot. Right? Yeah. If we want to know what the Bible means, we got to talk about it. We got to argue about it. Now, the fine distinctions about what is meant in one one place or another yeah, I don't think that those are going to have the same dire consequences as refusing to evangelize. Sure. Uh, right? Th- this isn't a, a question of, of salvation, whether or not you believe the kingdom is fully already here, here in some sense mm-hmm. and coming, or not yet here in any sense, and that's okay. Uh, depending on what you mean by those things, right? Somebody who thinks mm-hmm. that the kingdom is here all the way, big problem, right? Because if yeah. you're saying this is heaven... Yeah. We've been gypped. Oh, for real. Uh, yeah. yeah. But if you're saying that the kingdom's not here at all, and that means God doesn't care about you, he's abandoned you, you have no hope of salvation, well, that's also, like, there's there's unhealthy mm-hmm. extremes. Yeah. Well, um, I will say that your view does make it a lot easier to teach and understand, I'm especially thinking about that whole thing with the parables and mm-hmm. the Pharisees. Like, that's always a hard thing to understand, the whole, like, you know going back to Isaiah, that they may ever be seeing, but not perceiving, hearing, but not understanding, et cetera. This hardening kind of language is difficult, but this does make that a little bit easier to kind of piece together with the bigger puzzle. Yeah. And that's what I think reading, when I'm teaching hermeneutics to seventh graders, one of the metaphors I give is, is if you want to understand the Bible, think of it like a puzzle. Yeah. Start with, when you're doing a puzzle, you start with the edges, right? That's the main storyline. Which, that's one of the things that I love about, like, covenant theology is great in its simplicity of boiling down the story. And I agree with everything but the use of the word covenant. I, I prefer the word promise. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, that, that consistent through line of the promise of God to, to save people by grace through faith into his glorious kingdom, that's, that's the storyline, that's mm-hmm. the outline. And then you organize your pieces by color, right? That's the next thing you do when you're doing a puzzle. Unless you're my wife, in which case you just start laying pieces all over the place. But That do, covenant, the theologian. I do puzzles way more efficiently than she does. And I oh organize my, my pieces by color. <laughs> and I, I go, like, those are your genres, right? All of your red pieces are prophets. All your, like, understand how these books are working. Sure. And then start piecing them together. Yeah. And, and you start seeing the life and... When you get to the individual piece, you still got to find the place where that fits in the puzzle. Mm-hmm. And I find that the already not yet so often involves picking up the piece and going, well, oh, well, mm-hmm. <laughs> toss yeah. it over my shoulder because yeah. I can't make that fit. So it's just it's in the already not yet bucket and it's never going to make it into the puzzle. An incomplete puzzle in the end. And that's what I'm like, like, no, let's let's look at the pieces and 
put them together. Yeah. Uh, it well, takes work for sure. Uh, my last thought would be if I had to choose between your, your understanding of the prosperity gospel, I would go with you every day, right? <laughs> so I, I, I do agree that, that it is a real problem in Christianity that, that we, we probably do teach on the kingdom in a way that leads people to believe it is prosperous, you know, we don't have health issues, et cetera, et cetera. And that does lead people to a false gospel, yeah. you know, and to a false belief, you know, false expectations. So I, we do definitely want to caution against that. So I'm with you there. And that's my ultimate thing. It's like, if you take, I don't care if you agree with me on this. This is one of those issues that I think, great, we get to argue about. Yeah. It, yeah. Right. It's like yeah. the stakes aren't yeah. that high. Let's yeah. have fun debating the passages. Uh, but I hope at the, at the very least, if you've made it this far, you think to yourself, do I know what I mean when I say the word, the kingdom of God? Yeah. Or have I just been using it in this really hazy, mm-hmm. like catch all, it kind of yeah. means whatever I want it to mean in the moment. I think that's unhealthy. You should, you should know what you mean by the words you say. I also really like what you said about setting your sights not high enough because the, I think we've conflated abundant life and heaven as being sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so then we're just constantly disappointed when this life is not what it will be like one day when God's kingdom really is all the way. Amen. In, yeah. The resurrection is the hope yeah. that, that Christians have. Like, hold on to that as your, as your through line. Uh, I love it. Okay, if people want to come at you yeah. and um, debate you or hear more thoughts, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on my website that I have is, is mygiveonthings.com. It's mygiveonthings.com. It's nice little, instead of my take on things, yeah. it's my give. Uh, it's also a really good segue for me to ask people if they want to give yeah. their money <laughs> to us. Yeah. So we can keep doing this kind of stuff. And if you're thinking, man, I want to hear more of these delicious, you know, debates on minutia that actually turns out to be more important than you may have thought at the beginning, um, you can go to houstontot.com forward slash give. Um, and every little bit really does make a difference. And if you give, I think something like $50 a month or more, you get a pint glass. Yeah. Show the pint glass. Isn't, isn't that lovely? Um, and you also get to come to future events for free or, you know what I mean? You've already prepaid, I guess. It's not really for free. Nothing's free. But anyway, houstontot.com for everything you need to know. Except the free gift of grace. Oh, that's true. Nothing's free except the free gift of grace. Thank you for reminding us of that. Okay. Until we see you guys at a future event or um, find you again on the podcast, we encourage you as always to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.